We are um, starting a series this morning in the, uh, in the book of Ruth. Um, we're making a transition away from the catechism series. It's been a part of kind of our normal uh, ongoing for the past several, several months. Uh, initially, we were planning on running the catechism for the next five months or so. Uh, instead, of what we're doing is we're going to be shifting the focus of how we use the catechism from the pulpit by incorporating it along the way in future sermons in future series as the opportunity arises. So one of the things that's been really a gift in being a part of doing the catechism has been some of the foundational elements that we've gotten to lay together, and we've loved that. Uh, there's some things that conversations have been had around, com- about, around tables and living rooms, uh, me with children across the table who are getting baptized using this very tool. And so we're committed to it as a tool for discipleship, for training, for transformation. I think it's really, really good. And so it remains one of the central elements that we want to encourage families to participate in. And so if you're doing catechism right now with your family around the table, like continue to do so. If you're using it as you commute down to downtown Atlanta, use it for that purpose also. And then we'll be using it as we preach at different times to be able to, to solidify and to, and to back up some of the other elements of our series and of our preaching. It is an essential element in understanding our faith that we want to continue to use it faithfully. But as I said, we are starting a series in the book of Ruth. Uh, it's going to be a four-week series because there's four chapters in Ruth. And pretty much if you look at anyone who's ever preached this, they preach it in four times. So you don't want to break that kind of a cycle. Uh, you want to stay with what other people have done. Don't get creative. Um, but it's a, it's a beautiful book. Ruth is, is a book about loyalty. Uh, it's a book about loss and calamity. It's, it's a book about poverty and about widowhood. About, about good femininity and, and good masculinity. It's a, it's a book about covenant and, and love and, and marriage. It's a book about work and about integrity. It's a, it's a book about patience and, and faith. It's a book about provision and protection. And it's a book about hope. But one of the things that struck me most about the book of Ruth and reading through it and being exposed to it again is how it's a book about ordinary people. There are no miracles in the book of Ruth. There's nothing fantastic, nothing significant. Honestly, there's no reason why we know any of the characters in the book of Ruth. Well, there shouldn't be any reason except that God wanted us to. They're ordinary people living ordinary existence, ordinary events. And this is good news for those of us who think that God primarily, if not most significantly, operates in the significant, in the kaboom of life. I have two books on my bookshelf. Uh, One is... um, Radical by David Platt. Many of you guys may know that book. And right next to it, I have another book called Ordinary. And I have them there for a reason because there is a tension between how we walk our faith, right? Most of us go, well, you know, the last time I really knew God was at work in my life is when this big thing happened. But that's not primarily how God does his work in us. And when we think that that's only when God does his work in us, then we're not finding ourselves looking at the very fabric of our lives now saying, how is he doing it in me and through me right now? And Ruth says, it's happening. It's happening and you don't even know it. Let us look and find it. But above all, the book of Ruth is a book about God. It's a book about our God, a God who is weaving an undercurrent, something deep under the surface of a sovereign movement to accomplish purposes, which he's established and preparing for what he's going to accomplish in time through ordinary people. The book of Ruth is about God under the current moving towards something extraordinary through ordinary people. And ironically, as we celebrate Pentecost, that's what was inaugurated on Pentecost. 
an extraordinary moment that launched the church, which for 2,000 years has been in ordinary means primarily been bringing the good news of the gospel to men and women and children around the world, making disciples of all nations. So I'm going to read uh, Ruth chapter 1. Should be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need a Bible today because we're going to be bouncing around Ruth chapter 1 all over the place. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one for you. Sorry. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Wow, that was loud. <laughs> I'm just going to do that. Whenever I see someone kind of like, you know, like nodding, I'm just going to like do a quick swig. All right, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two, these sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived about there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the, from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night should bear, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, aloud, wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. 
So the two of them went and un- uh, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, and the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Can't you tell it's already going to be a great story? It's one of the best written books in, in the scriptures. It's beautiful. It's poetic. The literature is, is incredible. There's parallelisms and all kinds of other cool. Like if you're, a, if you're a, an English person, you think it's really, really cool. If you don't, you don't care. But it's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's really one of those incredibly crafted books. But it's crafted more significantly around, around this introduction chapter that sets up the entire remainder of the book. It's like act one, in a sense, of this entire play with, with three particular scenes laid out from there. And, that, and the first scene is really verse one through five, and you see is, is basically tragedy. It's a sequence of tragedy. Now, first, it starts in a season of tragedy. The book of Ruth takes place in the middle of the book of Judges. So if you have the book of Judges playing itself out, if you read your Bible, Ruth happens in the middle right there, a little bit towards two-thirds through. In the sea, so it says at the beginning of the verse, says, in the days when the judges ruled. That's when the book of Ruth is placed. One commentator said, about the book of Judges and about the season of the Judges. He said, the Judges teems with violent invasions, apostate religion, unchecked lawlessness, and tribal civil war. And frankly, that's probably putting it mildly. If you've read the book of Judges recently, it is, it seems like it's been ripped out of the pages of some kind of like scary novel or something that's happening somewhere around the world where no one has any control. It says at the end of the book of Judges, if you got your Bible, you look right up to the book of Judges. The last verse in the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 35 says, in, it tells you everything about the book of Judges and the time of the Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the book of, Ju- of, of Judges in a nutshell. Everyone's doing what they think is right in their own eyes, which, which frankly is just not, a, ironically, though it is unique, it's not, it's not particularly special. It is somewhat ordinary. Now, the kind of chaos that was going on is real, I mean, rape and, and death and murder and, and civil war, and it's, it's significant, but there's also something really ordinary about it. Because for all of time, since the history of the world has been the time of the judges, It's been true 50 years ago, it's true now, it's true 100 years ago and 1,000 years ago. It's taken on a variety of different economic forms and and political structures. It's manifested itself in in various countries and, and different people groups. But at the end of the day, mankind has done what is right in his own eyes. The what has shifted at times, that's, that's for sure. But at the end of the day, mankind has said, I choose me. I am curved in upon myself, as the catechism says. We reject and ignore God in the world he created. That's what's going on in the book of Judges. But that's what's going on today. People getting stabbed in London yesterday. 
That's, that's what's going on today, right? We could find ourselves at times looking into a season in the Bible and, and staying on the outside of it and being like, huh, I wonder what it would have been like for them. Instead of realizing, no, this is the time. This is the time of the judges. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. You're doing what's right in your own eyes more than you probably realize. It's the time of the judges. But beyond being the time of the judges, it's also a time when there was famine in the land. There's famine in the land, verse 1. So here's the setup. There's just tragedy about what's going on with culture. And then on top of that, we've got this famine going on in the land, which is clearly the hand of God. Because in Leviticus, um, in Leviticus chapter 20, 26, it said, if you walk, God talking to his people as he gives them the law, he says, if you walk in my statutes and you, and you observe my commandments to do them, well, then I will give you rain from, for you in season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. They're not doing it. Grain is not being grown. Fruit is not being yielded. There is, there is famine. They have turned from following the Lord. The hand of the Lord is upon the land. So there's famine, there's tragedy, and then, and then tragedy gets more severe. Elimelech takes his, two, his wife and his two sons, and they go to Moab. Now, it's surprising a Jew to leave the land where, where God has promised his presence to be, where he's promised his relationship and his covenant, his atonement to take place, for him to leave that is a really significant decision, especially to go to the land of Moab, where in, in, in Deuteronomy um, 23 and Numbers 21, God said, don't go to Moab. Don't associate with the Moabites, which I would say is a pretty good direction. It's saying we shouldn't go that direction. But because of this famine... Elimelech takes his family and they go to Moab. And the decision is significant because in a way, there's no way of looking at that decision without looking at, to a degree, Elimelech and his family turning their back on God, the God of the covenant who said, you can trust me. If you follow me, I will care for you. But they leave Bethlehem, which means bread because there is no bread. And they go to Moab. Now, one of the interesting sections, you have verse one, in verse 1, you have that they were going to sojourn in Moab. But you get to verse, to verse 2, and they actually are going to remain there. They started off going there just for a little while, and next thing you know, they end up remaining there. Have you ever noticed in your own life that whenever we find ourselves turning our backs on God, we always think about it, or taking matters into our hands, we always think about it as just for a little bit. I, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take care of this just for a little bit, God. Like, I, I'm gonna take care of myself just a little bit for just a little while. It's always just for a little while. But how often does it end up being far, far longer than that? Whether it's dabbling with flirtations or fantasy or pornography or, or dipping a toe into some questionable, maybe ethical behavior at work or at home. Dancing around the edges of the truth, which isn't really truth anymore. It's mostly falsehood, but it's, it's kind of the edges and it's just going to be there for a little while. Harboring hidden resentments, unforgiveness and grudges. You know, I just, I just need this for a little bit. Does that feel familiar? Have any, are you, any of you in Moab right now? Have you found yourselves going on a trip just for a little while to take care of the things that I just need to take care of for myself? It'll be fine. God and I will work it out later. 
So there's this tragedy of, of these people, this, this family leaving the promised land, the promised by God land where his covenant is to remain and abide and, and going to this foreign land and then tragedy strikes their family, Elimelech dies. Elimelech dies, and it's, and it's clearly tragic. But it says, well, okay, at least for Ruth, she still has her two sons. And by the way, that's a big deal because the lineage can continue. The family can continue. And so, so there's tragedy, but it's also mixed because we find out right away that the sons take two Moabite wives. And so there's this kind of, there's this challenge of like, okay, they're taking Moabite wives, there's a mixture at these weddings of, of the sorrow of the father who's not there. And if you've been at a wedding where someone's not there that should be there, there's a sorrow, right? There's, there's, a, there's a sadness and there's a joy happening simultaneously and a tension. But there's a deeper one in this case because, because they're not taking Israelite wives. They're, they're, not, they're not taking wives. They're not taking wives of the covenant. There's a pushing away, a, a departing. They're not heading home in light of the tragedies. Tragedy continues. And so they, they marry these two women. And, and, and for Naomi, at least there's a sense of, well, from here we can have progeny. We can have a future. We can have children who will care for and develop a family into the future. Maybe when we go back. And so she finds herself going by their houses and, and knocking on their doors, doing what we do to Haley and Hutan right now. And we're like, so how's the baby making process going? Just curious, just curious, just curious. Um, so my goal is to make Haley blush as much as possible, just so you know. Haley's my daughter, just so we're clear. Um, but, and I pointed out where you are too. Um, but she's longing for a family. She's longing for the fact that, and those of you who have grandchildren, you know, like they're, they're longing for there to be a story that surpasses and goes beyond you, especially having lost your, your, your husband. But months turn into years, and you know, years are turning into years and years, and 10 years later, there are still no pitter-patter of feet. There are no babies. There is no future. And then tragedy comes home, and both sons die. We don't know how closely they died to one another, but it seems like it must have been close enough because the calamity of it all comes and rests suddenly on Naomi. There is tragedy in this family. It's as though the, the summary statement at the end of verse 5 captures it all. It says, so that the woman, doesn't even use her name, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's Tragic. As of now, Naomi faces her declining years with no children or grandchildren. Who knows if it was her idea to move to Moab or, or not? And the scripture doesn't tell us. Was she looking back at this time going like, is God punishing me? Is God, did God punish my husband? I mean, whether it was her idea or whether she was actually opposed to it, she's either left with shame or guilt and frankly just left primarily with loss. Her suffering is acute. Her loss is significant. The question is, at this point, she sits in a, alone in a foreign land with her family tree teetering on the line of disappearing, of being extinguished. It seems at this point in the story where we must, God's going to have to intervene. He's going to have to come through somehow. And what do you know? Verse 6 shows up. And verse 6 says... For she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. 
the Lord had visited his people and he had given them food. I find it interesting, first of all, that she's in the fields, which points to the fact that she and her daughters are gleaning already in Moab. Candidly, they're not just sitting there waiting for something to fall out of the sky for them. They're, they're, they're working unto their own care and longing for something else, longing for something more. And they hear that the Lord has visited his people and he has given them food. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, it says that a famine came over Israel, right? But the new language is the language of hope. That the Lord has visited his people and that he has brought them food. It doesn't say that the famine ended or that the crops started growing. No, the Lord has stepped in to this story. And so it says that she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. Now, this whole process between verse 8 and verse 13 in particular, where there's this, this conversation, there's, there's a ton of stuff in there. We don't have time to talk about too much of it. We'll address it a little bit later but, um, in a couple of weeks. But um, one of the things that's happening here is, is as she's departing, she's getting far enough away so that her daughters are, are not able to say, no, no, stay here, stay with us. And so they're, they're leaving. And by the way, in, in Middle Eastern cultures, you don't just like wave at the door and close the door. You go with, you actually travel out of town and with for quite a while, potentially days, and then you part. And the parting is usually filled with emotion and sorrow and longing for when you'll see each other once again. And so these two daughters leave with her, and it's not clear as to whether or not they're going to go with her or they're going to go home. But Naomi makes it clear. She makes it crystal clear for them. She says in verse 8, go back and go back now. I have nothing to offer you. Go back to your mother's house, which is uh, literally go back to your mother's room is what it means, and it's, and, which is peculiar in the scriptures or in any uh, Middle Eastern um, literature because you go to your father's house, you don't go to your mother's house. But, but the, the particularity of go to your mother's house actually means go back to her mother's room because she's the one who arranges marriages for you, which is why later she says, so that you may have the, the gift from God that he may bless you with a husband so that your life can continue, you can be provided for, that you can live protected, may thrive. Go back, my daughters. I can't show kindness to you anymore. Let God show kindness to you in giving you a family. It's as though she's saying, girls, God has providentially been overruling all these events in my life and I don't know that you want to be with this. I think I might be cursed. Everything is falling apart around me. She says, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. And they weep. They weep twice. And this is, this is a beautiful picture of people who've been interwoven in each other's lives with one another. They've walked through both the affirmations and the journey together. And they've walked through loss together. Deep tears of sorrow. And Orpah does the sensible thing. She looks and says, I don't want to. She one time says, no, I, I'll go back with you to your people. But at Naomi's insistence, she says she does the sensible thing and, and she parts. But Ruth, Ruth does not. Ruth doesn't do the sensible thing. She says, these are the first words that we get to hear from Ruth. And they are, I think, some of the most beautiful words in the scriptures. They're used in, in, in weddings at times. And I, in some ways... They're, they're, the kind of love that it's reflective of is almost superior to that of marriage because of what she commits to. 
In verse 16, it says, but Ruth said this to Naomi. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Not I'll be there until you die and then I'll go home. No, I'll be with you. And then when you die, and then when I die, I'll be buried there with you. My whole life will be with you. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth, she's abandoning the known, the predictable. She's leaving her family of origin and all the, all the, all the religious understanding and all the cultural understanding that she had. And she's heading into the unknown. And honestly, she's giving up the prospect of marriage. Because the only person that she could marry and remain that committed to, uh, to, to Naomi would be one of her sons. And as we know, there are no more. So she's committed to the prospect of life without marriage, security, or future. And she's clinging to an aged, destitute widow. This does not seem like a good plan. She's confined herself to a life of childless widowhood in a foreign land for the rest of her life. But, but her commitment is far greater than geography or even tribal the, po- the most powerful commitment she makes is the one that you hear in there when she says, your God will be my God. Now, let me just say this. Naomi in verse 13 is like, hey, here's my, uh, you know, like, here's my, um, my news clippings about God. His hand's been severe against me. That's three verses earlier. I mean, your God's going to be my God. Are you listening, Ruth? H- have you been witness to what's been happening in her life? Naomi's claimed this God and look what he's done. Are you, are you crazy? And she says, no, no, your God is going to be my God. Your God, my God. Despite what, what Naomi has said, Ruth chooses to forsake her religious heritage and makes the God of Israel her God. Now, it's possible, perhaps she'd made this commitment before. Maybe uh, Chilion or Malon, we don't know which one was her husband, had shared with her some of the, uh, the pictures of what had been true of the God of Israel. Maybe, maybe Naomi herself had been walking her through the, the reality of this God of love who loved his people, who had come and rescued them in Egypt and, and by power had drawn them through the, through the Red Sea and, and had shown them the beauty of his law. And and from the law, he had invited them into the kind of covenant relationship to which he could display glory and righteousness in the land. Maybe they had told her these stories and she had found herself saying, I want that God. I see all the gods of my people, but I want that God. Something must have happened. Somehow or other, Ruth had had come to trust in Naomi's God despite Naomi's bitter experiences. In essence, she's choosing Naomi not because Naomi has anything to offer. She's choosing Naomi because she has committed, she has, she has committed disposition towards Naomi's God. She's not choosing Naomi because Naomi has anything to offer her. She's choosing her because she has a disposition toward Naomi's God. And that's all the difference. He has somehow irrevocably become her God. And that cannot change anymore. I don't know about you, but like the power uh, and the beauty of what Ruth declares there, and I encourage you this week, like just, just read it like four or five times and let, let the power of the words, of the commitment, of the weight of it just kind of roll over you. But, but it feels odd 
If you think about like what our cultural reality is today, like it just feels like foreign words. It feels to me like as I think about what is, um, what's on the headlines, what's, uh, what, what I hear if I'm sitting in a coffee shop or even in conversation is, is something that's far more something like that proclaims, as long as it works for me, I'm in and you can count on me. That, that feels like the declaration of the age. As long as it works for me, like I'm in and you can count on me. So as long as this friendship works for me, like I'm in and you can, you can count on me. As long as this marriage, it works for me, and you know what? Like I'm in, you can count on me as long as you remain this kind of person for me. I'm in, as long as this belief system works for me, well, I'm in, I'm in. And, and, and you can count on me to, to follow through on it. If this, as long as this career trajectory moves in the direction it should, like I'm in, you, you, can, you can count on me. As long as this community or this community group works for me, I'm in. And I think you can count on me for that. As long as this level of discomfort is what I'm given, I'm in and you can count on me. As long as my children get all the opportunities that they deserve, well, then I'm in and you can, you can count on me. As long as all those around me agree that what I think is right is right and that what I think is important is important and most important, then I'm in. And you can count on me. As long as this church works for me, well, then I'm in. You can count on me. As long as this God works for me, well, then I'm in. And he can count on me. Now, I'd just like to give a quick warning. If you found yourself going like, preach it, brother. That's right. There's some people who need to hear this. Probably some people sitting in this room. Then it's possible that you're committed to something different. Like as long as what I'm being called to or change to change or to grow in or it doesn't touch where I feel comfortable, well, then I'm in and you can count on me. No. The spirit of the age is with us and it's in us. If you dig deep enough, you'll find yourself saying, well, no, that's true here. That's true in this relationship. It's true with this element of my life. But the irony of what Jesus calls us to in discipleship is like, it's so the opposite of that. It actually is the true echo of what Ruth says. It's the fact when he says, if you want to be my disciple, just, just so we're clear about what that means, you, you, you die. You come and you die. Every day you pick up this thing that seems impossible to carry and then you trust that I'm going to carry it with you, that I'm actually going to carry it for you. Oh, if you want to be my disciple, yeah, you, you have to leave mother and father and, and, oh yeah, you have to leave home and job and comfort. That's, that's actually what it means to be my disciple. It's so radical that like, I feel like, honestly, we just kind of go like, oh, okay, just put that there. I don't, I don't know what to do with that. Are you kidding me? Who lives like that? He can't, first of all, he can't mean it for you, right? Don't worry, right? He can't mean it for you. Or does he? That's, it's why when I think of... Um, when I think of Peter, how he gets to echo Ruth's words, you know, when Jesus has, has made some wild declarations about what it's going to mean to follow him, and, and his disciples, a bunch of them go like, yeah, too much for me, I'm out, and they leave, and, and Jesus turns to the 12 and said, are you guys going to leave too? Do you remember what Peter says? He says, where else am I going to go? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Oh, this is tough, no doubt about it. What you're telling me here, like, I don't want to die, are you kidding me? I don't want to die to myself. I don't want to be stripped of all that's important to me. No, I don't want that. But if it means being without you, then and that's what it means to walk, then that's what I want. Uh, you know, 
I used to have a sticky on my uh, little office wall there about like what are the idolatries of our of our culture, and and there's no doubt that the idolatry of comfort is one of the the the, the supreme idolatry of our culture. Just don't make me uncomfortable, or at least too uncomfortable. Um, I just I just want you to know, like Jesus doesn't agree with that. Like he's not on that program with you. He's not on that program with me. He he is so okay with your life being uncomfortable. Let me return to my notes. <laughs> I, was, I was reminded of that uh, song I used to sing as a kid. Uh, you remember, uh, for those of you who grew up in the church, um, I have decided to follow Jesus. And uh, I just kept thinking of that with, with the reality of Ruth, like no turning back. No turning back. And I think there's a, there's a disposition that we see in, in how Ruth leans into God towards Naomi. That's kind of like, a, yeah, we're not turning back. And we live in an age of like, like FOMO, you know? And so it's like, it, well, is there a better thing going on? I just, let me, it's all turning back. Not with Jesus. It's not how our Lord works. It's not what he's inviting you into. Well, scene three, there's some hope in the midst of bitterness. They return to Bethlehem and like the city goes abuzz, which if, you, if you've never been part of a small town, then you're like, seriously, two widows show up and like people talk, who cares, like, right? But no one would notice if someone moved into Roswell. Wait, two widows moved into Roswell, no one cares. But that's not true in a small community like this. Naomi had left at least 10 years, at least 10 years ago. And so she returns and she's alone with this Moabitess. Where's her husband? What's happened to her boys? Did God get her? Did he get her? Yeah, she didn't stick around through the famine. She didn't go through the hard times with us. The city is abuzz. And the women say, what has happened to her? And the way they say it is, is this Naomi? Like, is this really her? First of all, it seems like the years have not been as kind as they should have been to you. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi which means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. There's nothing about my life that's pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. I want to show a couple things about Naomi, who, by the way, prior to this time, I've always been like, Naomi, such a disappointment. And during this time of study and reading, I have, I have come to love Naomi. Like, I, I, I both respect her, and it's, it's been really a cool experience. But let me say a couple observations, a couple things that we see in her. First, I just want to say, like, Naomi's honest. Like, she's actually calling reality what it really is. She's calling it as it is. She's not pretending like things are better than they are. Has the Lord dealt bitterly with Naomi? Has he? Yes. She has bitterness because her circumstances are bitter. They are hard. There's a great poet. His name's William um, Cowper. He wrote an incredible, incredible poem. I'm just going to read one section here. He says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him in his grace. Behind a frowning providence, 
he hides a smiling face. Naomi's reality is a frowning providence. It is a frowning providence. And she's honest about it. She laments, and her lament is justified. Some of y'all don't tell the truth. You don't tell the truth about the reality of what's going on. And, and worst of all, we don't do it here. The very place we're putting on airs should not exist, right? It should not exist. The place where our only real identifier is that we belong to Jesus Christ. And so we go, yeah, it's him, not me, him, not me. So we shouldn't have it. But, but I just don't want to go there. You know, I don't be negative, right? She tells things as they really are. Her sorrow and loss are real and she lets them out. But here's the amazing thing about it. That's why her tears are so beautiful. Is that she does so from a really grounded theological place. What does she say? She says, God exists, he's in control, and I'm in his hands. Oh, I don't like what's happening, just to be really clear. I don't like what's happening at all. But through her entire lament, the Almighty has dealt again. The Lord has brought, the Lord has testified, the Lord has brought. Like he's right there in the middle of it, and she's not running from him. What is she not saying? She's not saying, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me, and I am done with him. It's just too much. I'm done with him. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And you know what? Like, I didn't deserve that. There's plenty of other people who are, who are doing some really wacky, evil stuff in Israel. And yeah, we moved to Moab, but I didn't deserve that. Which incidentally, God's not saying that that actually happened. It had anything to do with why the men, men died. She doesn't say, God has dealt bitterly with me, but like I know right around the corner, something's good's going to happen because you know, God's always got to come through for me. Like, I know he's coming through for me, just right around the corner. She's not trusting in some false guaranteed prosperity that's not there. No. She sounds like Job in chapter 1 when he said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. She takes her sorrow and her bitterness and the bitter things she's experienced, and she takes them and she puts them smack dab in the middle of God's lap. And she goes, this is what it's going on, and this is what it feels like, and it's terrible. And we're, we don't do that. Like, we're bad at that. We just leave him. Or we, don't, we don't include him in it. When you talk about the things that are difficult in your life, is God in there? Like, is he in the midst of it? Is he, is he part of the... What is God doing right now? Like things are falling apart. Things are really challenging or I've lost this. Like what is he doing? Is that a part of it? Or is it like I got to figure out a way to make this happen? Take it out. I'm going to Moab. I'll be back. Is, is that what happens? But Naomi's view is, is incomplete. What she's missing is she's missing the reality of what God is already doing in her. One of the ways is she says, I, I, I'm not even seeing the fact that God has brought about He's brought about food. He's brought an end to a famine that's actually giving me the opportunity to come home and to glean here back amongst the covenant people. She's not seeing the fact that, yes, yeah, she went away full and came home empty, but she's not fully empty. She's got Ruth. Naomi, did you hear what Ruth said back in Moab? Did you hear her covenant to you? Who would want someone like that at their side? Don't, I, don't you? I do. She's not seeing what God has already given her. She's lost amidst her bereavement. She's sorrowful and confused. John Piper says that um, 
When we have decided that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness. We become so bitter that we can't see the rays of light peering out around the clouds. She couldn't see it. And what was most significant, she couldn't see what God was just about to do. That God had, unbeknownst to her, been preserving this man named Boaz. That there's a story that he was preparing and was going to write that she could not see and did not know. That he was up to something. And secondly, she'd forgotten that the saving purposes of God often begin with dark providence. It was true with Joseph. He goes through a very rough season before he finds himself in the place that goes, that's why I'm here, to save millions of people in an entire nation. It's true of Moses and his birth and his exile. It's true of David with Saul. It's true of the exile all to the synagogues. It's true in Jesus with Herod. It's true of Jesus at the cross. It's true with Paul and the blindness. It's true with Paul as he goes to Galatia that he has a preaching there because he ends up being sick. It's true that, that the church spreads because there's persecution in Jerusalem. That's how the church spreads. That there is this severe providence because something else is afoot. Something else is being done. God is at work. Can't see it. Can't see it. And so, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten amidst what's going on in your life? Whether the, the, the wear of the mundane or the genuine calamity and uncertainty that feels like is right outside the door and you walk out of here, waiting for you to stress you out as you drive home. Have you forgotten? You cannot see what God is doing in the midst of the uncertainty of your life. But you can try. I'm just saying you cannot see it all the way through. All you can say is God's up to something. Because God is always up to something in saving and working and transforming. His saving purposes are always on the move. Which is why it's amazing to come to the end of the chapter and have the final verse be this hint of hope, that ray of light that John was talking about. Um, and it says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. And this barley harvest is going to change everything for Ruth and Naomi. Both of the immediate needs and the future hope but far beyond that, reaching all the way down to what you need today. They couldn't see that, but the Lord knows. So some of you have turned, turned your backs and you're currently in Moab. You've run away from God. You're distant from the covenant community. And I want to tell you today that you need to hear that in Christ, the Lord has visited his people. In Christ, the Lord has visited his people for your sake, and you can come home. You know, it's one of the reasons why we do communion every week, right? Is because it is a forced reminder that you get to come home. That this is not because of what you've done or earned or pulled off, not because of how much you've cleaned your act up since last time, but because of the sheer gift of God, his sacrifice on your behalf. It's not your record, it's his record. And so you come and take this in agreement with his record for you. You come and you take your record and you throw it on the ground and you say, I better have this. If I don't have this, I have no hope. Are you in Moab? Come home. Come back to the covenant people. Come back to your God. 
He's waiting for you. Some of you are living lives, some of us are living lives of as long as it works for me. And loved ones, repent. As you see it, as you experience it, as it showed up this morning, turn to God and say, I don't know how to live any differently. I don't know how to change my as long as it works for me into as long as it works for you, I'm in. Because that's actually God's invitation is for you to go, as long as it works for you, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to do. I'll stay in whatever you want me to stay in. I'll leave whatever you want me to leave. As long as it works for you. And some of you are experiencing a frowning providence this morning. You're struggling. You're suffering. You're crushed by disappointment and loss. And I want to remind you that God is moving. He is moving. And there is hope. The barley harvest is beginning. And you may not see it. You may not see it. You probably don't see it. But he is at work. And he is inviting you to the hope of the empty tomb, to the new kingdom and the new king that is surely coming for you. And by the way, there's some of you that are on the other side of the frowning providence and the invitation to you is to speak about the great work that God has done in it. Rejoice that as he's walked you through the dark providence, that there's something significant that's been born out in you and that from that you can rejoice and you can tell other people. I love Psalm 105 says, oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Tell other people about the great story of God in your life. Demonstrate the hope he has confirmed in you by living in a way that makes people curious about your God. Demonstrate the hope he has confirmed in you by living in a way that makes people curious about your God. If he has walked you through a dark providence and you can look back at it and say, I couldn't see it, I had no idea. And today you can tell people about the work of God in you. It's what it means to be a disciple. It's what it means to be a witness. It's what happened at Pentecost. Go tell people about this amazing thing that God has done. This morning, regardless of where you're at, any of those situations and circumstances, um, God invites you to the table. He invites you to this meal. He's prepared it for you, and he's inviting you to receive it, to say, this is the meal that belongs to the people who say, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot do this of myself. I must have someone else for me. There is no other option. And that's what this meal is for. So as you come this morning, receive the elements, go back to your seat, and ask God, Lord, what do you have for me? How are you on the move in my life? And give me faith to trust you that I may make great declarations as Ruth did, because you're in me. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we do trust you with our very lives. Uh, we don't by no means do we understand all the ways that you have. We do not know all the ways in which you're desiring to move and change us. And frankly, Lord, there are ways in which you're doing that we probably don't like at all. But we trust you. You are the Almighty. Your purposes are good and true. And what you're fashioning, what you're forging in us, it is the best. It is for us. 
and there is great hope. So Lord, I pray for those who don't have hope this morning. I pray that they would find it at the cross as they see you for them giving yourself, not for, because of how good we would be, but because of how good you are towards us. You are enough. Father, will this meal, through this meal, will you make that true in us, that you would be enough, come what may. We pray that in Christ for your glory. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, come and receive the elements.